Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us on this Monday. We are starting off taking a look at what the Vancouver International Airport is doing as they anticipate a big bump in summer travelers compared to last year. Also taking a look at some delays that many people encountered on the this past weekend. Andy Margolis is the VP of Operations and Chief Operations Officer at YVR and joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. No problem at all. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Jill. Well, before we get to some of the measures that have been introduced to help make people uh, make their time at the airport seamless, can you talk a little bit about what happened on this past weekend on Saturday when many people saw delays with both their domestic and international flights? Uh, yeah, sure. As, uh, as I, kn- I know you're aware, we saw some... Um, uh, constraints within the air navigation system this weekend. Uh, these are something that we talk about with our partners on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and this weekend, due to some unplanned absences uh, uh, within the air navigation uh, space in Nav Canada, we saw some delays uh, put in place in order to manage the overall schedule. That's one of the tactics we have generally overall uh, is to ensure safety and security are top of mind um, and also to look after the passenger experience. Uh, sometimes there is a delay program that has to be put in place to manage the flow into not just Vancouver, but any of the other airports here in Canada. Right. Okay. And so it was something then with, and I know we got a, a statement from Nav Canada that that was where uh, kind of the issue started, but a bit of a domino effect in that if there, there's the problem there, uh, like you said, the other uh, other measures then have to be taken? Yeah, the uh, the airlines uh, ourselves and Nav Canada speak regularly throughout the, the day as this happens at every other airport in Canada. Um, and if there is an adjustment that needs to be make, uh, made, then they look at the schedules uh, and they pre-plan and then republish any changes in timings so that passengers can plan their journey as best as possible. And this, according to the statement from Nav Canada, um, they were saying that this was to address system capacity constraints due to unplanned absences. So is that, is that sounds like that's a staffing issue. Yes, I think they had some uh, staffing shortfalls over the weekend due to unplanned absences uh, and as a result of uh, needing to manage uh, safety and security and uh, flow in and out of the airports, uh, some adjustments had to be made to the timing of the flights. Is it frustrating or, or how concerning is it when, because it is something that's a different agency, but people are at YVR and they're looking at the boards or they're seeing that their flights are delayed and it's having a direct impact on them. I would imagine that, uh, that YVR is their point of contact and that's where uh, people are going to take their concerns and that's who's going to kind of get uh, the, the, be that first contact of somebody who's, who's maybe not too pleased that their flight has been delayed. Yeah, and that's just, that's the very nature of us being the airport. We are, uh, you know, people are coming here to travel and have that experience and flow through the airport. There are a number of people that uh, make up the ecosystem and the team sport that is running an airport and and an aviation industry. Um, And so we're trying to be as pre-planned with that as possible, have all of that relevant information from our partners uh, and publish it on our website. All of our staff that we have on the floor, we have over 150 people hired specifically for summer. Um, So we've got lots of people in YVR brand branded shirts on the floor in different zones, ready to help. And as any adjustments need to be made to the schedules or uh, people's travel plans, then we're here on the floor ready to answer those questions and help people flow through the airport as quickly and easily as possible. Have all the delays and the the delays from Saturday, as far as you know, has everything been uh, dealt with or is it back to normal operations? 
Yep, we've uh, normal operations today. Um, we are uh, we've got a regular flow rate into the airport today, um, and all of the recovery uh, that was required for a few. Uh, disrupted flights over the weekend has been accommodated and we are back to normal operations today. All right. Uh, Looking ahead into the summer, I know uh, YVR has put out a few numbers as well and a big jump compared to travel numbers from just last year as people are getting back into it, welcoming or planning to welcome uh, between July and September almost 7 million passengers. Uh, It was about 6 million last year. Uh, What's been put in place then or what's being done to try and make sure that uh, people do have a pretty smooth and seamless travel through the airport? Sure. Yes, we've done quite a lot of uh, summer planning with our partners. So we, yes, we've got a million passengers more this summer than we did last. That's between July and September. Uh, And so that puts additional uh, constraints on our processing environments. But we have uh, created our operational plans with the entire ecosystem. Uh, We've put additional uh, people on the floor. So you'll see branded YVR teams all over the floor helping and assisting passengers in every zone of the airport. Um, And then we've also got some technology investments that we've made and our partners have made uh, to assist with the speed and ease of the flow through the airport. So on departures, you can pre-book your security uh, spots through CATSA uh, by using YVR Express, uh, and that helps bring some more predictability and balance to the flow through the security screening. There's mobile passport control for anyone that's departing to the U.S., uh, and they can sign up for mobile passport control, and that will help uh, speed up their process through the border. And then our partners with CBSA have also done a number of improvements with ourselves on the pick kiosk process and how you pass information uh, from the passenger onto the border agency so that they can have minimal transaction time when it comes to the border. So all of those things have been put in place. Uh, The flows are working well in the run up to summer. um, And this is our first sort of really busy summer week with a very busy long weekend ahead. Uh, But all of these things are in place and we're uh, looking forward to a good passenger experience. And are those all new or were any of them in place last year? Uh, some of them were being trialed last year. Um, uh, YVR Express is now a permanent product that we have here at YVR, um, and that's really assisting with some of those busy peak periods. Uh, and then the mobile passport control, again, has been in development and was available, but uh, is really being signed up and improving the experience through uh, the U.S. border. Um, and no, the, the work that I referenced in CBSA, a lot of that improvement's all, a lot of those improvements have been done since last year, and we've got a much lower transaction time now at the border than before. And uh, one other uh, piece of information I noticed uh, in uh, the list of services and ways to help people get through the airport and to make it, uh, again, a seamless uh, tr- transit through the airport is the uh, the uh, Less Airport Stress Initiative Program. That's the ambassador dogs. How, how are, those, are they being used a lot? Or are you noticing or people noticing a difference when those dogs are brought out? Yeah, it's a hugely popular service uh, at YVR. In fact, uh, when it went away for a short period of time, there's a lot of demand for it to come back and it's being very well used throughout the airport. So if you come in, you'll see uh, lots of positions where uh, these um, uh, dogs are around for people to pat and uh, use as just sort of emotional support. And it's a good calming influence on the overall flow through the airport. It's a very popular service and it's in place right now. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Andy, for bringing us up to date on this and the update with the delays that we saw this past weekend. Appreciate your time today.
No problem at all. And for any of your listeners, just uh, all of the most up-to-date information is on our website. And uh, uh, that's the most uh, up-to-date information you can get. Thanks for being with us on this Monday. Well, anybody who has been involved in purchasing real estate, looking for real estate, maybe you've been in a bidding war, you know how daunting it can be and that information is always appreciated. Well, there is a new GPT-powered AI tool that is helping people specifically in the metro Vancouver real estate market. And Richard Morrison is the Vancouver realtor behind this tool and joins us on the line now. Richard, thank Thank you so much for being with us today. Hello, Joe. How are you? I'm very well. How about you? I'm very well. Thank you. How did this all come about, making this tool, this GPT-powered AI tool? Sure. It started out with um, about three months ago, actually about four months ago, when I started uh, playing around with uh, GPT-4, uh, GPT-3.5, sorry. And then uh, we started uh, um, looking into making a essentially an AI-assisted real estate, um, you know, tool so that it can give more power to buyers and sellers to make a better decision and also provide insights on, on every MLS property uh, listed on the lower mainland. So it's been quite an interesting journey um, and quite surprising um, at certain points of the journey, uh, learning how much it can do and then at some points, having to scale it back after speaking to my um, my lawyer advisor uh, pertaining to the Real Estate Services Act. So we had to scale it back a little bit because we can't have it give advice, mm-hmm. um, you know, on certain items. So, But it, it can certainly provide insights, positive and negative insights in each, each and every property. Interesting. So what kinds of things do people ask it or what kind of information are people looking for? Um, generally they, they ask for what none obvious insights can, I do, can you tell me about this property? So sometimes even us realtors, you know, we don't quite see, this is where the surprising part came from. We don't, sometimes we miss some, something we, we've known it for such a long time that, you know, it, sometimes you just miss even, um, the, the smallest details that are there and it can uncover those. So positives and negatives um, about about what's being said about the property and then combining it with the data sets that we have, it's quite interesting to see some of the results. Um, so things like positive insights, negative insights. Um, if I have a two-year-old and I want to do fun things in the area, what can you find for me? So it's able to find theaters, parks, um, you know, the closest uh, uh, recreation centers, their distances, where they're located, how long of a drive will you have to drive. Uh, I've been able to find out things like, um, um, when, you know, also general searches as well. Hey, I'm looking for a two-bedroom in, um, you know, the Coquitlam area, um, a minimum two-bedroom, two-baths with this type of square footage with a concierge and it's able to find that for you. Hmm, interesting. And so is it more f- being used, do you think then for say information about the neighborhood or, or things that are around, like you said, if you've got kids or you're looking for what's around, is it being used for that or more specifically also kind of the history of a property or specifics about an actual townhouse or condo or house? Yeah. So 
the historical part of it, um, we're aligning with the real estate board by August to, so we're going to be getting compliant with um, the board so that we can get sold data. So once we have sold data, we're going to, we're going to join it together with the current MLS data that we have. So we're going to be able to, um, you know, give, okay, so there's, you know, let's say you're looking at a two bedroom condo uh, downtown Vancouver and so the tool is going to be able to find, you know, the last three months of sold, recent sold data on two bedroom condos that have this particular, you know, uh, characteristic of this one that you're looking at. Well, what's a reasonable, what's, what, what could be, what would be a CMA? So it, it can do a, it can do a, a, a comparative market and analysis based on those, uh, on those comparables that just sold recently. And, and so it, it can spit out. You know, hey, this is this is a this is an approximate figure of what it could look like. So, you know, just to give you an idea, this was this was placed in hands of, you know, uh, large corporations like uh, Zillow, uh, Redfin. They had access to these algorithms that could uh, pick out, you know, uh, what a property could be worth. Well, well, now, um, you know, um, I'm able to use GPT-4 on the back end to be able to extrapolate those uh, values and of course um, you know the, the home buyer or the home seller could, could definitely benefit from that so and do you look at this then as a tool kind of to add it to other tools that people are using not that it's going to take the place of human interaction or, or, or conversations and kind of finding information that way but it can enhance that I think it can enhance it at this point it would just be an enhancement. I don't think it can replace, um, you know, real analytics from an experienced agent. Um, but in the future, I don't know what could what could come about. It could it could definitely overpass, you know, the insights and the knowledge of a local agent. I could easily see it go that way. Hmm. Uh, where can people access it then if people are are using it now? Yeah, if they're using it now, you can go to Straw homes.com so straw is in um, drinking from a straw homes.com and then you can search for uh, whatever area that you're looking at and then once you reach uh, a property that you're interested in then the on the bottom right hand side of the screen you'll see a chat bubble pop up and that's where you can chat with uh, our AI uh, property IQ regarding that that particular property for now, we only have it installed on each property, so you have to reach a property to be able to use it. But this week, we'll be able to, we're, we're going to implement uh, a site-wide uh, chat as well, so you'll be able to actually request a particular property on the chat, and it will bring up the property for you. But for now, this is how you access it. All right. Well, definitely uh, an interesting tool, and I can see why people are already uh, using that to try and get some of that information. Richard Morrison, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Have a good one. We now know how much it cost Surrey taxpayers in the defense of former Mayor Doug McCallum in that public mischief case. A line in the corporate reports shows it was $316,000 to that law firm, just north of $316,000. Well, joining us now is Linda Annis, a Surrey City Councillor. Councillor, thanks so much for taking some time today. 
My pleasure. It, it, it seems odd to not be talking about policing in Surrey, but I'm sure there's something we could talk about that as well. But I wanted to get your take on this line item and that we know what the price tag was now for that particular law firm. What is your reaction to that price? Well, over $300,000 is an awful lot of money to be spent on something like this. It could have been put to much better use. Uh, we need so many things here in Surrey, and you know it's unfortunate that... Uh, this was the bill that came in, and, you know, I think if uh, uh, former Mayor McCallum was paying the bill out of his personal, I'm not sure he would have hired arguably the most expensive lawyer in British Columbia. What does this say then about the rules that as far as who is who has their legal teams paid for and how, uh, the, or I suppose lack of rules maybe for that, but does it say something to, uh, does that need to be amended or looked at for the future? I think it absolutely does need to be looked at in the future. I'm all for, you know, elected officials having their legal bills covered when they're doing city business. But there needs to be stricter rules put on about, you know, how much you can spend, you know, what types of you know, lawyers you would get uh, so that there is some tighter controls over financially. I don't think, you know, hiring the most expensive or one of the most expensive lawyers in the province is what should happen. And I think there needs to be tighter rules put around this. So as elected officials, we know, you know, what would be covered and what won't be covered. And in this particular case, like you said, this is a well-known law firm, uh, Peck and Company Barristers, and uh, perhaps uh, one of the better-known criminal lawyers in all of Canada. Uh, So would you support something like a cap on if you are in the position where you are needing legal representation? And like you said, people will support the fact that, yes, the city does pay for these costs, but would you support a system where there's a cap on how much you can bill? Well, I think, you know, no elected official should be given a blank check to be able to write for their legal fees. And I do think that there needs to be tighter rules put around, you know, when we can hire lawyers and, you know, what type of lawyers we you know, would handle. And, you know, if it's a minor offense, certainly the type of lawyer or the amount that you would spend would be quite different than if it was a very serious uh, uh, defense that we would have to uh, get engaged with. So I do think there needs to be much tighter rules put around it and, you know, certainly caps on certain offenses and, you know, uh, just better guidelines in terms of what the hourly figures should be or fees should be, I should say. And so when you say caps on certain offenses, then so it would be dependent on what the person is charged with? Well, absolutely. You know, to hire the most expensive lawyer, uh, or one of the most expensive lawyers in British Columbia or Canada, for that matter, you know, isn't necessarily commensurate with this particular offense. And I think what we need to be looking at is have, you know, the ability to hire a good lawyer for certain, but not necessarily the most expensive. Uh, you know, we need to be reasonable and remember that this is taxpayers' money that's paying the bill at the end. Right. And I guess that's where there might be some debate or even a difference of opinion in that in this case as well, as we know, uh, Doug McCallum was uh, acquitted. He, he was found not guilty of the public mischief charge. And could there not have been an argument made that the, the reason that he had a successful outcome or successful for him was because he was able to hire the best in the business? Well, I think really at the end of the day, this was the judge's decision as to whether or not, uh, you know, uh, Doug McCallum was guilty or not. And I don't think it takes the most expensive or one of the most expensive lawyers in British Columbia to come to that conclusion. It was the judge that made the decision based on, you know, facts as he saw it.
Right. Um, Before the trial as well, we heard uh, from Brenda Locke, uh, the now mayor, saying that McCallum would be paying back every cent of that bill if she became mayor. Uh, We know that she is, in fact, mayor. But then uh, she amended it saying, well, it's it's different now that because he was found not guilty. Um, uh, Your thoughts on that, given that had it gone the other way, do you think there would have been a case? Would it have been possible to get the money repaid to the city? No, under the current ways that the bylaws are written, if an elected official is uh, out doing city business or seen to be doing city business, our legal fees are covered. You know, um, Brenda Locke may have wished that he would pay it back, but in the end of the day, that's not what the bylaws say. Right. But wasn't he grocery shopping? He was grocery shopping, but uh, what uh, was decided that uh, when the mayor is out in the uh, public domain, that he's a mayor, and so subject to public scrutiny 24-7. And I think that was how it was dealt with. Uh, So in the end of the day, you know, whether he was grocery shopping or attending, you know, a civic function doesn't really matter. He was there and he is the mayor or was the mayor, I should say, of the city. All right. Uh, so th- this figure, I know, and it's a depending on who you ask. Some saying, "Oh, they thought the, the figure might be more uh, that uh, more than the three hundred sixteen thousand uh, dollars." Others saying that it it is too much. And and do you think that the city is there something to be learned from this? Then do you think it actually will get attention paid to it, or changes will be made because of this? It absolutely needs to uh, be a wake up call for the city that we need to have tighter controls over what legal bills we will pay and which legal bills we won't pay and how much uh, any individual councillor or mayor can charge. There needs, you know, obviously um, it was, you know, the rules were too slack here. You know, um, uh, certainly uh, Mayor McKellen was entitled to um, have his legal bills paid, but not necessarily with the most expensive lawyers, but the way, you know, our bylaw is written right now, uh, he did what he was you know, able to do. All right. Well, we're going to um, open up the phone lines and hear from people on this. Uh, but t- just before I let you go, Councillor, uh, is there any news when it comes to the future of policing and what Surrey residents say? Any uh, news as far as a final decision or more clarity on what things are looking like in the city? Well, I think the, the decision on of the which way policing is going in Surrey can't help happen soon enough. We're all very, very frustrated by it, and we want a decision. The residents of Surrey are, you know, very concerned because we know, you know, each month that ticks by, it's another $8 million of taxpayers' money that's being spent to run two forces. So I do hope that uh, Minister Farmworth is able to make a decision soon. Having said that, I don't want him to just make a hasty decision for the making for the purposes of making a decision. We need to make sure that he has time to do diligence over our report and come up with what is the best decision for the residents of Surrey. All right. Councillor Linda Annis, as always, thank you so much. My pleasure, Jill. Thank you. There is a growing number of investigations into the Titan submersible's fatal implosion. One is being handled by the United States Coast Guard. Coast Guard officials say that the immediate priority will be the recovery of evidence from the seafloor. Take a listen to ABC's Sam Sweeney reporting that the RCMP also looking to determine whether a full investigation into the accident is warranted. The Transportation Safety Board of Canada, they're going to be talking with those people and they've already 
already started talking with those people who were out on the polar prints. That's the host ship. They're going to be asking them what they knew, what they saw. Were there any concerns? Were there any rules or even laws broken? Is there a criminal element to this? And uh, as I mentioned, an international group of agencies now investigating what caused the implosion. We're talking about groups working on this from the United States, Canada, France and the United Kingdom. Well, what to make of this large investigation and the what seems to be limitless search and rescue personnel and money to go into this investigation. Well, joining us now is Ali Askari, a professor of disaster and emergency management at York University. Professor, thank you so much for taking some time today. Hi, and thank you very much for having me. What are your thoughts on the size, the scope, the number of investigations that are taking place after this catastrophic event? I think it is important to have uh, this investigation, uh, not necessarily for uh, this particular uh, incident, uh, but mostly because it's going to guide us in the future and help us develop, hopefully, a system, a governance of uh, systems that help uh, managing this uh, this kind of activities in the future. So uh, I look at the importance of this uh, this uh, for future, uh, you know, use of uh, these kind of operations and activities uh, on the sea as well as uh, similar similar situations. So uh, I'm really glad that these kind of investigations are are happening. Uh, it is required for sure, and also uh, help us better uh, better understand the, the situation and and look into detail and uh, hopefully develop uh, better regulations here. And I think that's one of the questions that's being asked is because this is such such a a niche type of uh, engagement or a niche type of activity, these uh, these adventure-seeking ventures that really cater to to people who uh, have a lot of money and are able to take part in them, that not that it's not important to find out what happened, but just the scale of the investigation and the amount of time, the amount of resources that are being used to, to put into this. Uh, that that's true. It is it's gonna uh, of course uh, add to the already high cost of this uh, this incident. Uh, the, the, this requires a lot of investigations, a lot of assessments, and even maybe laboratory uh, assessment. Bringing in a lot of uh, you know groups of experts to to talk about it is going to be a, a costly uh, investigation, definitely. But as I said, this is this is more of we, we should look at it uh, more of uh, something that help us uh, in the future. Although uh, at the same time, uh, the, there is a need to to understand who also bears the cost of, of the investigation. And uh, at the end of the day, there has to be uh, these elements into uh, future risk assessment of these kind of operations, as I uh, previously discussed on this topic. That uh, really uh, at the at the end, we need to make sure that uh, all these costs are incorporated in the risk assessment so that uh, at the end of the day, uh, this, the, the, the costs are, are, transferred, are not transferred to, to the public uh, uh, all the time. Right. And is it different as well because we're talking about this privately owned, very, very specific adventure 
seeking type company in that we're not talking about investigating, say, a commercial plane crash where knowing what went wrong will make sure that it doesn't happen again and uh, something that is very widely accessible and used by by the public and not suggesting that that one life is, is different from another or more valuable from another. But it's a very, very small number of people who would ever take part in in an adventure like this, who would ever even be able to? And I think that's maybe where the questions are coming in that it seems like there is no cost spared to go and investigate this when when when, when there are costs spared in other cases. I, I, I fully understand. And I think that is that is that is a fair question uh, in, in general. However, um, uh, investigation is, is part of this process uh, because uh, an incident with fatalities have occurred in in Canadian exclusive. It is international water, but it is under Canadian exclusive uh, exclusive economic zone. So there has to be in, an investigation for that anyway, and um, th- th- there may be additional investigation, as you rightly mentioned. There are other uh, different countries, also different stakeholders from different angles are going to uh, investigate that. This this is a, a regular process and uh, regardless of the nature of activity, this, this has to be done. And uh, the only benefit, as I said, that we can get from it is that hopefully this investigation helps us to figure out uh, and to minimize future uh, cases like this, not necessarily to spend, you know, uh, this um, uh, finances or, or support to uh, to focus on on this particular incident. I think this is not the the goal of this investigation, neither, neither the goal of any other investigations that happens after an incident. The main goal is really to understand, bring in the evidences and uh, find out what has happened because we want to prevent these things from happening in the future. We don't know uh, who will be uh, or how this kind of technology is being used in the future. Maybe this this larger uh, interested bodies. And in fact, if it becomes a safe and regulated uh, practice, of course, with you know something that can uh, more people can benefit from it. Uh, both ways, you know, uh, these kind of uh, activities can generate some sort of economic activity for those who uh, are involved in the process and also those who support this kind of operation. So, if if we can through this investigation, we can uh, come up with solutions that make these operations safe and uh, even more uh, economically feasible, if, if at all it's possible, then it's going to help larger um, community and also help the, the, the overall, uh, you know, people who, are, who will be involved in, in essence. So really the, the, the essence of that uh, investigation uh, is, is, is on that. We, we, we should consider that. Uh, it's not just about uh, finding out what happened here to to finish the case and close close the case. Right. And how much do you think as well needs to be focused on um, what happened to the actual submersible, to the Titan, and and what happened when it launched, and also leading up to that, because certainly there were many people that came out saying that actually I'd seen the waivers and that was what threw me off and I didn't want to do this because I had safety concerns. How much of it also do you think needs to focus on maybe a lack of regulation or or what actually went into building this, putting this company together and, and what it was able to do? 
I'm sure I'm, 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 I'm happy that you you, you uh, raised this question. This is this is the important part of I think this this conversation that um, this investigation has to go beyond the regular uh, you know uh, sea or uh, type of um, transportation accident review uh, or or investigation. This has to go beyond that and look into uh, some of the gaps shortcomings in the existing regulations, in the existing practices, in the existing risk assessment. So it has to be a comprehensive, especially focusing on how these risks are are, are basically transferred to the public uh, and trying to minimize that. If, if the investigations lead to that point where uh, we look at correcting uh, and filling some of these gaps that hugely existed in this this case is going to be really beneficial and important part. So that is, uh, I think we are reaching to that exact point where we, we now that this this investigation is going to be made, we want hopefully to be made it so that it uh, it covers uh, right from the beginning uh, till the end, uh, which by which I mean. Um, for, from the beginning of starting this this operation, uh, everything related to how this this is started, how the the risks were assessed if at all, uh, and how uh, what kind of regulations should have existed that didn't exist uh, by the time this uh, operation started, and uh, how and why all the warnings were were neglected and, and so on. So this investigation has to be really comprehensive, and uh, then. What happened during the, the, particularly during the search and rescue operations? Can we, as a society, really handle this type of emergencies? Do we have the, the capacity? Do we have uh, enough, uh, you know, equipment, tools, uh, human uh, personnel to tackle this? My, my real worry during the whole uh, search and rescue process was really to, uh, uh, to see uh, and thinking if, if. Because of this search and rescue, we will have uh, additional injured uh, or fatality uh, in just taking care of that. These these are important things that need to be taken into into consideration in uh, in this investigation. And hopefully, if they are going to help us, you know, as I said, manage the future uh, of these kind of operations. Right. And, and something you touched on there, if I'm hearing correctly, uh, when you talked about the, the, the safety of people searching and, and whether or not we're putting people while that search was ongoing and there was still some hope that this that the Titan could be recovered, that maybe that they were OK, uh, the, the level of risk that we're comfortable with uh, putting other people in. Exactly. That, that, that's really the point. And this has to be uh, taken into into the assessment part, as I said, we we should understand that this is not just about you know the risk that an individual or a company is is trying to manage. It is a risk that is being, or uh, at the end of the day, if something goes wrong, it is the society as a whole that has to deal with it, and. But we were lucky in a sense because the, the, at least the, the environment uh, at the time of this crisis there was not uh, like a stormy, uh, like so that still there was uh, lower risk for people who were uh, trying to to assist and help search and rescue. Because if 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 you are considering, for example, a stormy situation, uh, bad weather conditions, it's going to add to to the risk. 
And so all these things need to be considered and brought and internalized, in a sense, into the assessment process. If if uh, the, these kind of operations are not safe, generally, uh, the, 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 why should we even uh, take part in them? Right. Well, it's uh, certainly an interesting uh, part of this uh, of this story. Uh, Ali Askari, we'll leave it there for today, but I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you.